continue studying through the book of Acts this morning, and we're going to be talking about this idea of conflict resolution. And I know that sounds like kind of an odd topic to worship to, conflict resolution, but the reason we do is because the Bible makes it clear to us this is a part of our Christian journey. And so I'm going to start by asking you this question. Have you ever had to make the statement to somebody, we're going to have to agree to disagree? Uh, If you've been married longer than 10 minutes, I assure you at some point, if you didn't make the statement, you were thinking the statement because that way you didn't choke each other to death. That's just kind of the way it works. And, And so here's the deal. Typically, what you're agreeing to do is take these irreconcilable differences, meaning this, we're not going to be on the same page and I'm going to kind of go my way, you're going to go your way, and we're still at some point going to be okay. And so here's the thing. I share that with you because sometimes we can agree to disagree and and then we can stay together. And then sometimes in our agreement to disagree, there is some separation. And believe it or not, we're going to talk about today those situations in which separation is actually required or it's something that is not contrary to Scripture. We're going to see it today uh, there at the very end of chapter 15 in Acts. We're going to see the dynamic duo. That's what I refer to Paul and Barnabas. They are an incredible missionary apostle dynamic duo. And you would think that if you've got two apostles that are called by the Lord to do the work of the Lord, that those guys would have always been agreement, and it would have been kumbaya around the campfire as they went through all these missionary journeys, and that is just not the reality what we read today. Paul and Barnabas get so heated in disagreement that these two guys split parts. They split ways, and they go different directions, and they're still carrying out the ministry of the Lord. But the part that we need to learn today is this, is not just the reality of disagreement within the Christian community. Because please hear me, there's always going to be disagreement in the Christian community. Why? Because there's more than two of us. And so anytime there's more than two of us, there's going to be disagreement. That's just the way this works. And in fact, if there were only two of us, there would still be disagreement in the Christian community because it's Paul and Barnabas. It's just two people. Yet what I want us to learn today is this. How do we manage that properly? How do we have these disagreements? Even if separation is what comes out of that, how do we still do it in such a biblical fashion that God is honored, the church is, the church is going to be His magnificent name on earth, and, and so that's the type of thing that we want to study and look at this morning. What does disagreeing properly look like? Because we can disagree and it be improper, or we can disagree and it have some properness to it according to Scripture. So, so this is the central thought I want you to focus on this morning, is the fact that Christians, believers in particular, when, when we have this disagreement, These disagreements, whether it's in our home or whether it's in our church or in our workplace or in in our recreational space, whatever that is, we must make sure that we disagree properly. Because the Bible teaches there are things that will signify that. So it's not necessarily 12 steps on how to disagree properly or six steps to conflict resolution. It's signs and symptoms that we're disagreeing the right way. That's what we're going to pull from the text today. And, And understand there are some rules that we do need to follow. So Join with me as we study that this morning. So let's pray together. And again, I'll start reading here in just a minute out of chapter 15, verse 36. Father, thank you again for giving us the chance to get together today. And Father, help us to remember that as we study the truth of your word, and it's all inspired by the Holy Spirit, sometimes, Lord, there is just a lot of practical truth. It's it's really intriguing to me as a, a preacher and a teacher of the word when we get into those theologically deep things because it forces me to to explore doctrines. But Father, sometimes there are texts like today's text which are far more practical, our our everyday living. And Lord, that is just like you. You you are deep in such a way that we'll never really 
understand you theologically, yet at the same time you're practical. Sun comes up, sun goes down. Tide comes in, tide goes out. And so, Lord, this text is just as important as some of the deeper theological texts we'll find in the book of Romans. So help us today to learn a very valuable lesson. This thing that will come to all of us in a Christian community, again, whether in our homes, our workplaces, whether in our churches, whatever it may be, there's going to be this thing called disagreement. Father, it does matter how we handle it. That's the key. It does matter how we handle it. So today, give us wisdom to understand from the life of Paul and Barnabas. Father, this dynamic duo of apostleship, these two super missionaries, so to speak, who decide to go separate ways, and yet, Father, there are things that they do that indicate to us, here's behaviors that need to define our times of conflict and disagreement as well. So, Lord, help us to learn that today. Give us that wisdom. For, Lord, you've imparted this to us in this text to make us more like your Son. And, Lord, that's our goal today in this time of worship, is not only to acknowledge and glorify the name of Jesus, but, Father, seek to be more like the name of Jesus, the person of Jesus. And, Father, we can only do that if you help us to understand more who you are, and this is a reflection of that. So give us wisdom, and we praise you for that gift in advance. In Jesus' name. Amen. So if you would, just take your text and follow along, starting there in chapter 15. Uh, We'll be reading from verse 36 all the way down to about the sixth or fifth or sixth verse of chapter 16. After some time had passed, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the brothers and sisters in every town where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Uh, I want you to understand again, it says after some time has passed, we have no idea what kind of time. We have an estimation from other different letters that Paul wrote, and so, so there is a time frame here, but Luke doesn't get specific, and even though Luke accompanied him on some of those missionary journeys, what we're talking about here is Paul's second missionary journey, and notice when this is coming. They've just settled this disagreement about what's required for salvation, and what not is required for salvation is converting to Judaism first. It is this idea of grace, but if you are saved, there were certain behaviors they said, you need to follow. So they sent that list back to the church at Antioch. The church has celebrated. And and now Paul says, okay, hey, enough celebration. Uh, We're not done yet. There's more churches to plant. But as opposed to the church planting, you understand what this trip is all about. This trip is a spiritual checkup. See, when we read it in English, it sounds like, okay, let's go back and see how they're doing. And that doesn't really capture it. If you look at this phrase, see how they're doing, the word there at the end of that is echo. E-C-H-O. You're like, yeah, that's an English word. No, it's actually a Greek word first. And echo means what somebody holds to, what somebody believes, what somebody practices. So here's what Paul says. Hey, we've been gone for a while. We've planted these churches. We've left some elders and teachers there, but we need to go back and spiritually check up on them. We, We need to see that they're still teaching the word. They're still following the word. Let's see if there's some type of spiritual maturity taking place. So so if you highlight or underline or star, here's your very first teaching point of the day. You need to have from time to time your own spiritual checkup. You you need to be checking to see where you are. You should be able to trace through your Christian life that you have become more fruit-bearing, meaning this, there's more Christian behavior in you now than what there was when you were first saved. And if you can't track that, then then we need to have more frequent spiritual checkups. The way that I have added that in my life is I meet with a group of guys every Monday morning at 6 a.m., and we discuss week after week what our struggles have been. Amen. How's your Bible intake been? How has your prayer life been? Is there an area of your life where you're really laboring? And we ask some very specific questions to get answers to that. Why? Because we need these spiritual checkups. This is what Paul said. I'm not going back just to hang out with them. It's going to be cool because we're going to have potluck and celebration and all that fun stuff. 
But he said, we need to go back and find out where they really are. We need to check. I mean, I'm responsible. If I planted this church, I've got some responsibility to find out where they really are. Let's, let's find out in relationship to the teaching of the Word how well they've employed all these truths that we've left with them. And so Barnabas would not have been in disagreement with that. Notice where the disagreement comes in, however. Barnabas wanted to take along John Mark. Now, Paul's about to explain, or Luke actually does, why Paul would not have wanted this to happen. But if y'all don't remember, in the first missionary journey, I showed you the map week after week. And so Paul goes across and and he makes it up to this place called Pamphylia. And in Pamphylia, obviously, that's where they started running into problems. That's where the Jews in the synagogue started taking them on a little bit, started harassing them a little bit. And what did John Mark do? He left them. Now, Paul and Barnabas continued onward to the point of Paul being stoned to death, at least to the point of death. What did John Mark do when they got to Pamphylia before it got really, really hot and really, really difficult? He left and went back home. And so for Paul, this is an issue. But Paul insisted that they should not take along this man who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone on with them to the work. Now, I've given you a picture up here. Um, you know, this is like St. Paul and St. Barnabas. Now, in you know, Baptist churches, we don't sainthood anybody. We're all part of the sainthood, right? We're all saints and followers of Jesus. They probably didn't put on boxing gloves. But, but I just wanted you to understand how intense this was. you got one guy wanting to go to Cyprus. This is Barnabas, and he's going to take John Mark with him. And notice, John Mark's kind of perplexed because he understands he's the reason the dynamic duo is splitting up. Y'all, this is kind of like Batman and Robin going different ways. And this is exactly what was taking place. you got Paul, now he's going to head on off to Derby and Lystra and all those other places. And so we've got a legit conflict here, and you could grasp this in the Greek. Listen, they had a sharp disagreement. Paroximos is the word for disagreement. It means intense fight. It's not just an argument. And again, that's the reason I put the boxing gloves up. I don't really feel like they came to blows, but I feel like that the anger and the emotions were there. I mean, this would have been a heated disagreement. And you're like, you've got to be kidding me, Paul and Barnabas? I mean, these guys are responsible for planting more churches in the beginning of Christianity than anybody else. And you're saying these two guys had it out to the part where it got so intense, it was almost like a fight. Yeah, that's exactly what this says. And so you've got two very strong Christian leaders. They disagreed so sharply that they parted company, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed off to Cyprus. Now here's the reason, if y'all don't remember, Barnabas was from Cyprus. And so they're up at Antioch, I think, Josiah, if you would, let me get this next slide. Here we go, yeah, this will give you an idea. So if you go all the way over here to the right, up there around Syria, you see the church at Antioch, and then if you'll see Cyprus just to the left of it, that is actually where, where Barnabas was from. And so Barnabas had lots of connections there. He, he had a lot of Christian followers that were friends there, and so he takes John Mark with him. And, and so if he wants to get John Mark's feet wet again back in the missionary world, what's he want him to do? He wants him to start out with a good experience. So why not take him to a place where there'll be no conflict and they're not going to stone you to death? So that's a, good, that's a good strategy. If we want to kind of break this guy back in so he doesn't tuck tail and run once again, let's start him out where it's easy and where it's a little bit softer. And, and so he, he uses great strategy. Barnabas is going to go over here to Cyprus. Now what you're going to see leaving Antioch and coming around that little bay right there headed towards Tarsus, this is going to be Paul's second missionary journey. That's how the Bible describes these. There are three major journeys. This is journey number two. The first one was Paul and Barnabas together. 
The second one, they have split ways and they're going about this separately. So you've got Paul who's going to come around the bay. He's headed over to Tarsus. And then what they don't show you is Barnabas leaves Antioch and he's headed over to Cyprus. And that's exactly what Luke tells us. But after Paul chose Silas, now y'all know there's lots of good stories coming up with Paul and Silas too, like singing in a jail and chains falling off and the jail having an earthquake and coming apart and them escaping or not escaping. I mean, there's all types of great stories coming up with Silas as well. But after Paul chose Silas and departed, after being commended by the brothers and sisters to the grace of the Lord. All right, so here's something I do want you to notice. Even though they agreed to disagree, even though they have done it properly in that, hey, I don't want to hinder your work, but yet I'm going to continue the work of the Lord. Notice it says the church only recognized one half of that separation. It didn't say anything about the church commended Barnabas. So so it may appear that the church did have a way that the church kind of failed. So, So the church there in Antioch sounds like they supported the sending off of Paul but it doesn't say they commended the sending off of Barnabas. Yet Barnabas was convinced of his work and he goes anyway, but it sounds like Paul was the one that the church in Antioch supported. And so, so Paul takes Silas and he leaves with the blessing, the grace of the Lord given to him by the church. He traveled through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Okay, so here's another teaching point. The word strengthening is epistorizo. It means to make more firm. So so here's something I want you to learn about disagreement among Christian brothers and sisters. When there is disagreement among Christian brothers and sisters, what you do is not try to create sides. You try to make people more firm in their faith in Jesus, not in people. We don't follow man. We don't follow people. What we do is we follow the Lord. And so notice what he was doing. His job was to make more firm people in their faith. Episterizo means to strengthen them in their faith not to strengthen them in their following of Paul. He didn't go to those churches he had planted and say, hey, me and Barnabas have split up, and, and I, you, know, you know, we still need your gifts, we need your support, support Paul, don't support Barnabas. No, no. Only thing he does is go back and do what God would have him to do, is to teach the Word and strengthen them in their faith, not, not mentioning disagreement stuff. He's not going there to hinder Barnabas's work. Barnabas didn't go to hinder Paul's work, they just couldn't work together. And, and so, again... This is this part of us having these divisions. All right, so let's apply that to your life just daily. You're probably not going to go to Syria at any point and start a church or check on a church that you planted years ago. So, so what does that mean inside your own house? So even when you and your spouse disagree and, and you understand you're not going to come to an immediate agreement on that topic, your goal still is to strengthen each other in the Lord. Your goal still within your marriage is to strengthen, strengthen each other's faith and position in the Lord. Uh, again, that's a challenge because when we have disagreement, what do we want to do? We want to support our side. Well, that's kind of how it goes in my house. It may not in yours. Y'all may be great. But, but, you know, like if we're in a disagreement, I want to win. But God is not about winning. God is about strengthening the faith in those that we are investing in so they can serve Him better. And so we've got to be very guarded there. So then it jumps into chapter 16. Remember, in English is where we put these divisions. That's not actually in the Greek. It's just one letter. Paul went on to Derby and Lystra. Uh, you can still see some of the words. Tarsus, Derby up here, and then Lystra. Um, y'all remember what happened in Lystra, right? That's where he got stoned to death and put on the, the, the dead pile heap. I mean, that's where he was stacked up for dead. And then they went right back into the city that night. Again, I've told you before, that's the reason God didn't call me to be a missionary. Uh, I know I grew up in Mississippi, but I'm smart enough that if you stone me to death, I leave. I can get it. 
I get the message. Paul now goes back for the third time. And so uh, this is a guy who is truly devoted to his calling. Where there was a disciple named Timothy, the son of a believing Jewish woman, but his father was Greek. Okay, so that's kind of a mouthful. Start with disciple first. Remember, we're supposed to be disciples of Christ, disciples of Jesus. What does that mean? It's the word mathetes. It's the word mathetes in Greek. It means two things. It means follower. All right, so, so here's our idea typically of following. Like if I'm following you, I just follow you. But I may not give my turn signal the same time you give your turn signal. I may not take the turn the way you do. I may not use my brakes the way you use your brakes. And here, that's pretty vital in these curves and turns. You know, so we all, we, we can follow without really doing the same thing. That's not this word. A disciple, a mathetes in the New Testament language is someone who does the same as the one you're coming after. So, so here's what the Bible says. Here's what Luke says about Timothy. Here's a guy who was living like Jesus. Here's a guy who was following Jesus. And following meaning in a spiritual sense because Jesus has ascended already at this point in the book of Acts. That took place all the way back in Acts 1. And so we've got a guy who is living after the way Jesus lived. But mathetes also means something else. It means a pupil or a student. So here's what I want you to understand. If you're a true Christ follower, which means you're a disciple of Jesus, there's two things that should define your life. Number one, you're emulating the behaviors of Jesus. So you're following in that you act like him. Number two, you're a student of Jesus. Well, well, where is our textbook on Jesus? It's this one, right? 66 books of it. Where's our textbook on Jesus? There's been many other books outside of this book written about Jesus. It is okay if you read those. But the one where you should spend the bulk of your time is called the Bible. Because that's what it means. It means I'm a student. So Methetes is a follower. I do what I see this person doing, but then I study this person so I can do it better. And in case you don't know, that's why we study the Word, to learn more about God. In his revelation letter to us, we, we want to learn about his nature and character and what it is we're supposed to emulate and follow. And so obviously, this guy does that. Now notice what it says. He's got some difficulties, however, as far as his upbringing is concerned. His mom is a believing Jewish woman. Notice those are two separate terms. Not believing in Judaism, but believing in what? Believing in Christ. So she's a Christian Jew, kind of like all the Jews there in Jerusalem. They were Jewish Christians. She's a Jewish Christian. But notice the difficulty here for poor Timothy. His daddy was what? His daddy was Greek. And so you've got kind of a split household. So understand how this marriage would have been viewed in the Jewish culture. Because mama is a Jew, but daddy is a Greek, the Jews would not have recognized that as legitimate marriage. And so the lineage or heritage of any child born to this illegitimate relationship would have been underneath the mom. So, so guess what? Timothy would have been con considered by the Jews. He's a Jew. He's not a Greek. It doesn't matter that his dad's a Greek because his dad doesn't play into this because they did not recognize that as marriage. Any child that came out of this is thus Jewish. Now notice what then Paul realizes is going to be a difficulty for poor Timothy. The brothers and sisters at Lystra and Iconium spoke highly of him. Okay, so his reputation is super. His reputation is great, but those are people who are not all Jewish. These are people who are viewing him from a cultural standpoint. Paul knows, hey, I want to take Timothy with me, and the first place I always go is the Jewish synagogue. If this guy is not fully Jewish, meaning if he's not circumcised and has followed some of the rules, they're going to reject him immediately. How am I going to use this guy as a teacher-preacher 
if we don't set him up to be successful. And so Paul, being very wise, notice what the Bible said. Paul wanted Timothy to go with him, so he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, since they all knew that his father was a Greek. So again, I want to set you up for success. Church, that's one of the things we do. Notice, this disagreement has occurred. Paul is looking for a new partner. Here's Timothy, who turns out to be like his godchild, so to speak. This is his spiritual son. Paul invests in him like a mentor. So I want to set you up for success. So here's what I want you to grasp. Out of separation, out of disagreement, good things still occur, and they should be occurring. And so Paul is trying to ensure that they're going to occur because he's processing all the things. He's not focused on, okay, man, I used to be able to do all this with Barnabas. He's not focused on bitterness back here. He has moved on from that disagreement, and he's focusing on accomplishment here. If you've had major disagreement in your life, you can't constantly be looking back at that if you want to dodge all the pitfalls in front of you. Because if I run looking this way, what do I do? I hit stuff. I fall. I trip. And so what we have to do is take disagreements and we move forward after them, looking to make things successful moving forward. We can't focus there. We have to focus out here. As they traveled through the towns, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem for the people to observe. Y'all listen, this was eye-opening to me as I went back through this. I have read this. I have preached through this multiple times. Yet, I went back and I looked at that word decisions. You know what word that actually is? It's the word dogma. When you think of the word dogma, do you think positive or negative? I typically think like legalistic, fundamental, dogma, dogmatic. It's not. The word dogma simply means instruction. Instruction. That's all it means. Dogma means instructions. I've always had kind of a negative connotation of dogma, and yet it's not negative at all. It's a very neutral word. It just means instructions. And notice, it was the instructions that they told them to live by, which was don't have any other gods. Have God the Father. Don't have any other gods. Jesus is it. Don't, don't practice this. Don't dabble into that. Just worship Jesus. That was the dogma. That was the rule. So here's what I want you to understand. There's nothing wrong with rules, and we shouldn't bristle at rules. We shouldn't bristle. It shouldn't cause the hair on the back of our neck to hackle up. It it shouldn't cause that. Dogma is just instruction. And and so Paul goes back, and he starts telling all these churches, hey, you don't have to convert to Judaism, good news. However, there are some rules that should define who we are. Well, Well, of course there's rules that should define who we are. And so the churches were strengthened in the faith. Why? Because Paul was making every effort to strengthen them in the faith and check up on them spiritually. But notice this outcome as well. And they grew daily in numbers. I don't want you to miss this. This is very important. Okay, so Paul has this big intense argument with Barnabas. And Paul says, I'm taking my toys and I quit. I ain't planting any more churches. No, that's not what Paul did. What did Paul do? I'm not going to focus on this intense disagreement. I'm going to take my calling and my giftedness and my assignment from the Lord. I'm going to go out and continue to do what I'm supposed to do. And as I strengthen people in their faith, even though there's been this intense argument, and please hear me, do you think that separation impacted the church at Antioch? Of course it did. Where did Paul and Barnabas come out of? The church at Antioch, both of them. Both of them. Do you think it impacted that church? Yes, it did. But what did both of those men do? They remained faithful, went out, continued to do what they were supposed to do, and notice what it said the end result was. Because they went out to do what they were supposed to do, which was strengthen people in their faith and not to draw attention to sides and separation. What happened to the church? It grew in number. 
it grew in number. Notice, Paul didn't grow it, Barnabas didn't grow it, Luke didn't grow it, Silas didn't grow it, John Mark didn't grow it. Who grew it? God grew it. Why? Because the church, even in the midst of separation and disagreement, chose to do what the church was supposed to do. And when we do what we're supposed to do, in Acts 2 and now in Acts 15, what is the end result of that? God will grow His church. But church, we have to play by the rules. Notice, dogma was mentioned right at the very end. There are instructions that have to be followed. And in every relationship, please hear me, including the marital relationship, there are rules that we have to play by. Watch this. Our fights get pretty, I get very intense. I don't really yell or scream or whatever, but we, we get pretty intense and we start pointing fingers. Everybody wants to say that they don't have conflict and that if they do have a fight, it's very reasonable, but that's not true. I've never met anyone that's really true for. Allison is a definite curveball for me because, you know, typically men get really, you know, intellectual or they kind of work through their argument points and kind of logically argue their way out of the argument or whatever. And Allison does that much better than I could ever dream of doing that. I mean, she remembers point by point, And whenever we get in an argument, I mean, she can go back to the beginning and take one sentence that I said and just tear it apart. Then I get frustrated. Then she comes back and is emotionally hurt as well. And so I feel like there's no, uh, there, there's no winning. I'd rather give the silent treatment, but in our marriage, that's usually not an option because Jason won't let me keep talking about it and talking about it. I get fed up and I have to say something, so. I can tend to be really sarcastic and take, like Jason said, really using the words that he said, you know, to benefit whatever argument I'm trying to offer and use them sarcastically. Maybe a little self-deprecating talk like, oh, it's all my fault then, and, you know. I turn it all really back on her. Look, I'm, I'm fine with this, I'm ready to move on, but you still have this problem and this issue, so whenever you're ready to get over it, then we can both move on and have a happy Christian marriage. And so I have this like holier than thou kind of attitude and um, that's not good. Okay, when I say play by the rules, I'm saying not use the stuff that they do, right? Okay, so, so what did y'all catch? All right, going back and renaming every fault that's ever occurred. Remember what Paul and Barnabas did do? They did part, but Paul did not look back where? He didn't look back here. He went this way. One of the rules that we must play by as Christians, whether it's in our marriages with our children, in our churches, or in our workplace, is we cannot keep a long list of faults back here. Because every time you start to bring those up, you're doing something that's not Christ-like. Because what does the Bible say in 1 John 1, 9? If I confess my sins to God, what does God do to those sins? He says, I wash you clean of those, and I don't constantly take you back there and remind you of those. I allow you to move forward. We have to be the same way in our Christian journey. We, we can't lean back. Of course, she mentioned the silent treatment. Um, you, you know what the silent treatment is. This is you saying you're right without using your mouth. You know, I know none of y'all are guilty of any of that stuff, so y'all don't list faults. None of you do the silent treatment. Um, none of you do what Jason was talking about in the video. I turn it back on her. 
look, I'm absolutely good with this. Obviously, you're the one that's got the problem. And walk out. You know, that, that's the blame game. You know, name it, blame it. You know, not name it and claim it, but name it and blame it. That's what we do all the time, right? And so, again, here's the deal. If, as a Christ follower, I am truly following and emulating Jesus and studying Jesus, I understand in conflict resolution, I have to play by the rules. And if I'm playing by the rules, there are some signs. Remember, this is not a self-help program. This is not 12 steps to conflict resolution. This is, let's pull from this text some things that should be in your walk and journey if you're playing by the rules in your relationships with other people. Number one, you need to check out your own fruit. You need to check out the own fruit. Notice, here's what Paul said. The very first statement was, we're going to go back to all those churches we planted and we're going to see what they echo, what they have. You know what an echo is, right? It's just a repeat of an original. You do know what your life is supposed to be. Your life is supposed to be an echo of the life of Jesus. So, So you should see the model of Jesus and what should you have? Echo, 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 Jesus, continual from your behavior. But how can we do that? Well, we try to emulate what we learn from Scripture, but we have to study Scripture in order to emulate that. And so here's what you need to do. The next time you have a disagreement, the next time you have a disagreement, again, in your home, in the workplace, whatever it is, retail, wherever you're at, here's what I want you to do. Before you start condemning them, check your fruit. Check your fruit. See if any of this disagreement is motivated by your own pride. See if the disagreement is motivated by your own selfishness. See if the disagreement is motivated and continued by your need to be right. You do know sometimes we just want to be right. It is about being right. It's not about the principle. No, no, no. It's really about the principle. And right or wrong should not be the goal. It's about the principle. And so again, check your own fruit. Number two, accept that disagreements are going to occur. Listen, I, oh, y'all, I've done 55 to 60 marriages at this point. I require five or six sessions uh, in premarital counseling, and I can't tell you how many couples are like, you know, we have just never disagreed. Of course, I have to bite my tongue because what I want to say is give it about five more minutes because when I start taking you through the stuff we're going to talk about, like financial management, who has veto power when it comes to the checkbook, We start talking about sexual intimacy and expectations and family, other family expectations, like what type of traditions are you going to establish in light of the fact that you've got all these other traditions. When Amanda and I first got married, all of our grandparents pretty much were still alive. We had like 18 different Christmas things we were supposed to do in two days. After the first year, Justin said, "Uh uh-uh, Christmas morning's in my house. That made me very unpopular with a certain side of my family but we still do it the same way 21 years later. Because again, there's going to be disagreement. There's going to be these things where we just don't see eye to eye on, and we have to come to some type of conclusion to move forward. Number three, make others more firm in their faith is your goal. Remember, uh, Jason and his wife discussing how they disagreed and argued, and the goal sounds like it was to win no matter which side it was on. You do understand the goal If my wife and I disagree, what my goal should be is to make her more firm in her relationship with Jesus, not to win. Do I do that all the time? Really? No. Should I strive to do that all the time? Yes. Because if I learn anything from Paul and Barnabas, they didn't focus on the separation and the disagreement. They focused on making others more firm in the faith. 
I don't want you focused on this. I want you focused on becoming more like Christ. Number four, be a real disciple. If you want to handle your disagreements properly, again, this spiritual checkup on your own discipleship, am I a true follower of Jesus? Meaning, am I doing everything in this disagreement? Am I doing everything in this argument that Jesus would have done? Am I speaking with kindness? I had one of those moments just yesterday, and just as I'm thinking about this, looking back on it, there's a couple of responses that I gave yesterday that probably weren't real Jesus-like. Now, please hear me. They weren't cursing or inappropriate words like that. But y'all know tone. Tone is just as important as what you say. You know, how, that's what my mama used to say. It's not what you said, it's how you said it. Yeah, I probably had some of those as I was driving to Springfield in the snow and ice to the airport because my daughter had made a commitment she herself couldn't fulfill, so guess who got to fulfill it for her? As I was reminding about how we should decision make, um, probably wasn't as kind as it should have been. And so, if we're real disciples, if we're real disciples, even in our disagreements, we're thinking about how to be more Jesus-like in that disagreement as opposed to, I want to make my point. Because that's what we typically want to do. And number five, don't be turned off by the dogma. Here, here's what I mean by that. Don't be turned off by rules. Notice, none of the churches were, that's what's so ironic to this. I, I kind of view the word dogma negatively because we use the term dogmatic that way. We, we, we think of somebody who's dogmatic is like a bulldog. They just refuse to let go. They're a pit bull. But dogma, rules or instructions in themselves are not bad. And we should follow rules and instructions like Matthew 18. Matthew 18 is very clear. If there is a spiritual hurt, emotional hurt between you and somebody else, you have the responsibility in kindness to go to them and notify them of that. If they just refuse or ignore that, you have the responsibility to take a witness or two witnesses with you to confront, especially on sin issues. Now, please let me go ahead and issue a clarifier here. Just because somebody says something you disagree with, don't Matthew 18 them to death. If this is a true spiritual hurt or it's a sin in their world, their life, and it's obvious it's a public sin, then you have a responsibility to go to them. If they refuse to hear you, they reject your, your counsel, your wisdom. The Bible says that's foolish to reject wise counsel. But if they reject that, you have every right to go back with a couple of other witnesses saying, hey, I want this thing to work. I want this relationship to work out. Here's what would be necessary for me. And they refuse that. The Bible says if it's a true sin issue, if it's a true sin issue, then you take it to the church. And the church then makes some decisions. Again, so you see that that needs to be a very significant, prominent thing. But we can utilize Matthew 18 every day without taking it all the way to the church but by going to somebody, and instead of like giving the silent treatment and trying to win, we go to them and say, you know what, this is what made it very difficult for me to hear you. When you said this, man, the rest of my head just shut off. Yeah, when you referred to that, when you started referring to stuff that happened 17 years ago, man, I shut off here because I'm 17 years past that. And my wife is much better than that than I am. You know, I, I'm one of those, you know, when it reaches the point where I'm losing the argument, that's when I cut the TV back on. You know, and, and that's really productive. Y'all know how that goes, right? People really enjoy talking to the side of your head. They'd rather you make eye contact with them and give them full attention. And so, again, it's this idea of not being offended by biblical rules. Biblical rules are there to keep us in relationship with each other. So, so here, here's where I want to close today. There's a couple of relationships I want us to process as we go into our response time. And remember, there's really only two. 
there's this relationship. This is what we call the vertical. This is our relationship with the Lord. Now, there's things on this that apply to that. Am I really firm in the faith? Am I the disciple I'm supposed to be? And for some of you this morning, you may look at me and say, Justin, I don't know that I am a disciple, period. I, I would tell you this, I do believe in Jesus, but I don't know that I really seek to follow Jesus. I don't know that I've ever studied to try to learn more about Jesus. However, for some reason, when you said that, man, it sparked something inside me, and, and I am curious. What, what does that look like? What does that really mean? Well, great, I'm glad you asked me because i got an answer for you. I can't give it to you right here in these two to three minutes we're going to use to close, but here's what I can do. If you are interested in becoming a disciple, a true follower of Jesus for the very first time, we, we are prepared for that. We've got folks that have prayed up all week, and here's what they want to do. They want to sit down with you and explain to you biblically what it means to be like Timothy was. Notice what the Bible said? Timothy was a disciple. And if you want disciple, that heading added to your name, you want to be a follower of Jesus, here's what I need you to do. When I start to pray in just a minute, you're going to stand up. And right then, and nobody else looking and watching you, you're going to walk straight over here to these doors, and there's going to be a, a team of people waiting for you. And someone's going to take you back to a more private area, and they're just going to kind of walk you through what Scripture says is required for somebody to be a disciple. We're not going to ask you to commit to anything, sign anything, walk an aisle. Here's what we're going to ask you to do. Give us just a minute to reason with you from the Scriptures about being a disciple. Because there's no chance you landed here haphazardly today. God orchestrated everything in your world to have you land here, so all of a sudden in your mind is this thought about being a disciple. If that is you today, give us a chance to do what God has brought you here for, to learn about being a disciple. But here's the thing, lots of you already are. Yet this relationship is still very important, and just as I mentioned, John 1, 1 9 really comes into play here. 1 John 1, 9 is very important here. This idea of, of making sure that in this relationship with God, I'm confessing on a regular basis what I know are sins in me. And the Bible says God takes that, honors that, wipes those sins clean. And so today I want you to think about your vertical relationship. What is your discipleship like? What does your fruit look like? Well, here, here's the thing. When I produce this fruit, how is that fruit usually shared though? It's usually shared this way. And those are the horizontal relationships that I have with other people. Those are the Galatians 6.10 relationships. It says, you know, if it's up to you, do your best to serve all people, but especially those that are part of the body of Christ. And so the question would be, how are you living out these principles of Jesus? How does that look in your relationships to other people? As it's up to you, have you done everything to create peace in those relationships? Remember, peace doesn't mean everybody's in the same place, same time, sitting around the campfire singing kumbaya. That's not what it means. It didn't mean that for Paul and Barnabas. But what it does mean is this. We are not a hindrance in each other's carrying out of the calling God has on each other of us. And we're supportive of what the other is doing. We're not, we're not out there taking down and drawing down, drawing attention to self and bringing down the reputation of other people. That, that is not what reconciliation is about. And so my question to you is this this morning. Is there a relationship in your world you need to pray about? Not just this relationship here, but is there a relationship here that you need to pray about? Maybe some bitterness. Maybe a family member. Maybe even you and your spouse came into this room today and there was some tension. There was a little bit of heat going on. And God said, yep, thought about you this morning. You need to listen to this. And so what I'm going to have you to do when we stand in just a moment is I want you to just focus on that. Just relationship. 
your relationship with the Lord, your relationship with other people. If there's one of those you need to take to Jesus this morning, just give that to him. I mean, literally, Lord, as it is up to me, I am going to do this correctly. I can't control the other side of this, but as it is up to me, I'm going to do this well. So